So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And I'm going to go as far as to call this episode our summer special. Uh, I say that not only because our middle feature this week is going to make you want to abandon your humdrum life, dive into the ocean, sail the world, and rob it of its riches whilst wearing nothing more than your swimming trunks, but also because uh, we recorded this week's Zeitgeist on a roof terrace. Uh, It's been that kind of week, hasn't it? Uh, And it was so hot that the sun melted our recording equipment and we didn't notice until we got home. Uh, Ollie in Dorset, I in Hertfordshire, producer Matt in London. Uh, So uh, this week's zeitgeist does end rather abruptly (laughs) without you hearing what Ollie's challenge is for next week because it was 30 degrees and we were sweating in places where we didn't even know we had glands and it was so hot our mobile studio melted and we didn't realise till afterwards. So that's what's happening there. If you think, oh, that ended suddenly, think summer special. Uh, And uh, yeah, this week's middle feature is a plundering, smuggling, almost dare I say swashbuckling story of adventure on the high seas. It is the incredible true story of a man who made millions of dollars treasure hunting, shipping drugs across the ocean and inspiring an international manhunt. Uh, Before we get going though, uh, my thanks to our sponsor this week, Beer52 Dot com. Uh, they are the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club, and they are British. I've met them, they're lovely, they're based out of Edinburgh. And basically, if you want the world's best craft beers delivered to your door, and who doesn't, then give them a go. They're great, you don't have to slap big bags of beer back from the supermarket anymore, and they are excellently curated as well. Uh, Just last night, in fact, I opened up an IPA that they'd sent me last month called Shameless. Uh, It's made in Macclesfield, just like our very own shameless Alex Fox. Uh, I did bastardise it slightly by adding ice and lemonade. Forgive me, it was a hot summer's evening. Uh, But that's the great thing about Beer 52. There's no trendy barman judging you. This is craft beer in the privacy of your own home. Uh, Anyway, if you want to check them out, they have a great deal just for man fans. A free case of beer. I am not shitting you. It is free. It's worth 24 quid. It is free to you. All you have to pay is the 2.95 delivery charge. Uh, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one really. It, it is a trial case, so if you don't want the monthly membership afterwards, you can cancel. But this case is genuinely free. You can't say fairer than that. Uh, get your free case now at beer52.com slash man. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash M-A-N-N. And thanks again to them. Uh, Right, on this week's show, you will learn why you shouldn't beach camp where there are sand fleas. You'll learn which colours are emblazoned upon the asexual flag. And you'll learn what inside burn-off is. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. They rioted that day. They had 750 guys in the yard. This Rob must die was painted on the side of the coffin. Piracy, money laundering and fuel smuggling. The man who dived into adventure. Libido, I would say, is like a sailing boat. 
and Alex Fox sails to the rescue of a listener with a low sex drive. But first, recorded this week on a roof terrace, so forgive the distant sound of Bagpipe Street Entertainment, it's the Zeitgeist with Ollie Peart. Hello, Ollie. Hi, Ollie. Last week, Man Fan Angus challenged you to become a wiki master. You look the same. Yes. But what's the reality? Well, what he meant by wiki master, I quickly established, is wiki editor. And the first thing I did is try and edit a wiki page. Now, mm-hmm. we said last week, let's edit your page. Yeah, we, we didn't say, hey, let's edit my page. Yeah, we agreed. You said, I'm going to edit your page. You and had I was a look. Like, I'd rather you didn't. Well, I've done it. You have a couple of issues on your wiki page. When's the last time you checked it? Uh, I check it probably once every six months. Normally when I'm thinking, oh, I'm up for this job, that person might Google me. What does my Wikipedia page say? Yeah. Well, in September 2016, uh, there was a notation on there. A major contributor to this article appears to have a close connection with its subject. It's me. Right, so you've edited your own wiki page. Well, doesn't everyone edit their own wiki page if, you, if they see something that's untrue? But that now means that that notation is on your article, and it will be, which means that there's questions about it. So this, this, there could be false information here, it could be inaccurate. Yeah, and I had to go out of my way to find footnotes, however tedious and extraneous, to verify things that I knew about myself, like what school I went to or whatever. First thing that I noticed about your page is that you didn't even have the modern man on there. I've done it. The thing is, whenever I've tried to actually edit one of those pages, I've just found it very frustrating and time-consuming. I've had to Google how to do each thing, and then I've got lost in a web of nerds. Was that your experience? The sort of like default is to edit it in code, so like exactly, yeah, and it, which is really d- difficult and tricky. And it's like Reddit, isn't it? So it's instantly putting a wall up which says you have to be a bit of a nerd to participate. But you can change that, so you can edit it in just a normal text way. It's like editing a word document, mm. so it's really simple. So I've also on my quest to become a wiki master created a uh, a wiki page and that's one thing I found really difficult is finding subjects and topics that I could write about with authority mm. that weren't already on Wikipedia that's actually that, that is half the battle because list of uh, beard grooming products presumably already exists something quite literally fell onto my lap this morning which I've done a post about so mm-hmm. I was on the train and I was thinking shit I haven't done a proper full page I'm really worried about this and I got chatting to the uh, train guard and I said, oh, I've got loads of tickets, it's really annoying. And he said, you can sell those on eBay. And I went, no, no one's going to buy my old tickets on eBay. And he goes, they will. And he grabbed one of my tickets and he stamped it with an old pair of what are called ticket nippers. The, the pliers. The pliers. And yeah. he went, they will now. That's a really rare pair of ticket nippers. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a photo of the ticket nippers yeah. and the ticket and uh, they were produced by a company called T. Newey & Sons. And they're nowhere to be found. And the Science Museum says there's very little known about this company, just that they were probably based in Sheffield or whatever. So I've started a page on T. Newey and Sons and their ticket nippers. Amazing. And, and that they're rare and that you can... Uh, well, how did you pe- verify that they were rare? Well, because I spoke to a train guard who told yeah, no, me. No, I know, but what did you put in the footnote? You can't put in the footnote, I know because I spoke to a train guard who told me. Yeah, so this is where my mastery starts to fall down ever so slightly. Like, when you start to pull together pages from scratch it is really difficult to make sure that you have authentic sources so chap john wikimedia foundation he wanted to do posts on middle eastern female poets and he knew of this woman who had a poem in a book so he went out to buy the book got the book got it back and in the notes it said nothing is known about this poet (laughs) So it's really, like, if you know nothing, you know nothing, but then you put that you know nothing. Yeah, but it's not that you know nothing. You know something, but it's hearsay. It's anecdotal. Well, in this circumstance, I cited the Science Museum's suggestion that they only know that they were probably based in Sheffield. So Mm. that's enough. That's my point. Like, it's an aggregation of fact, right? Did you link through to the presumably longer and more extensive article on other ticket nippers? Nope. 
Have you looked to see if there is one? No. Nope. Why um, didn't you look? I mean, that's the first thing. Because this thing. is you about T. Whole... Newey. This is T. Newey and Sons ticket nippers. Yeah, but that's a stub of the ticket newers page, isn't it? Like, obviously. Well, there is a there is a, a wiki on ticket snippers. Is that what you mean? Oh, snippers. I thought they were or nippers. Ticket nippers. There is a thing on ticket nippers. What did you see? Say this your... is why my no. research needs work. This is <laughs> falling into a world of fake news. What did you say on the show a minute ago? Did you say nippers or snippers? Nippers. They nippers. are nippers. They're called nippers. Ticket They're called nippers. nippers. Right, okay. And what did I just say? Did I say surely there's a page on ticket nippers or did I say surely there's a page on ticket snippers? You said nippers and then I said snippers. Right. So you said nippers and then I said nippers. <laughs> you said nippers, I said snippers. Right. And then, but what, what I meant was nippers. Right. My point is, right, there must be a bigger page about ticket nippers. Surely. Yeah, there's a bigger page about ticket nippers. <laughs> But I'm speaking specifically about the T. Newey and Sons yes, company. Yes, I know, and I, their know I know, But I'm just saying, surely the whole point of Wikipedia is that you meet other people who are interested in nippers or snippers. Uh, you, yeah. you collaborate to their knowledge, don't you? You don't just create your own page. Well, I create my own page because there was no page I on know, these I understand, I understand. So to become a really successful editor, it's not enough to just go online every once in a while and type away. Exactly. Well, on your own page, as I've discovered. <laughs> so actually, it's not about being an editor. You said it's about being an editor. It isn't. A real Wikimaster presumably is an admin, right? Yeah, that's right. And the top admin is uh, some, a user that goes by the name Sir Amantio Di Nicoleo. Hold on. There's one top admin in the world who doesn't work for Wikipedia. Yep. Wow. And his That's like when count, they call Simon Cowell the chief judge. He, and well, like, there yeah. isn't a chief judge, but there is. And this guy... His edit count is 2.5 million edits since 2006. So he joined in 2006, and since then he's had 2.5 million edits. And you think about that, you try to sort of weigh it out and how like distribute that over that time. More times than we've urinated. Yes. And I since discovered that to even reach that level, you need to implement an algorithm, a bot. You need automation. The successful ones write their own algorithms no. that scrape wiki data, and they can create syntax that uses that wiki data to correct and create articles i also spoke to rosie stevenson goodnight who's the 2016 co-wikipedian of the year wow. i didn't ask what that meant but it sounds really impressive she's a wiki master clearly and i asked her what she thought like the future of wiki was and she said it's wiki data it's like manually entered data about george washington so you'd say george washington was a human born on this day here and then you can create and write an algorithm that could then formulate an entire post or article about mm, him because he's referencing so many other posts yes so if in the george washington article it says that he was a fan of gravy then if you're writing an article about gravy sauce you could create a new stub celebrity fans of gravy sauce yes but like you haven't had to enter that it's just done it for you and on the wiki commons app they're using all of that data to identify geographically where those posts are so if you're in london for example there might be a wiki post about that building for example the dome shaped one yeah there might be a post about that but it might not have a photo mm -hmm. so within that app i can take a photo and upload it onto there as well but it uses the wiki data to identify where that is geographically and lay it over a map and you could do that with loads of things. What I want to know is, and you might not know the answer to this, but what I've always been curious about is, with the contentious articles, and let's not talk about the really contentious ones like Trump or Israel or whatever, but sort of one rung below that, like let's say, I don't know, uh, Prince Philip, right? There's, I imagine, a first and second paragraph of that that basically haven't changed for 10 or 11 years. And the reason for that will be they're going to be watertight accurate, but they're all based on probably one or two people's initial writing of that article. So theoretically, there's nothing intrinsically 
wrong about a Wikipedia user coming along in 2018 and saying, no, I want to rewrite the beginning of this. I want to start in a completely different way. I don't want to start born prince, whatever, whatever. I want to start with a different fact. Well, those pages, the important ones like Prince Philip, I mean, you mentioned Trump as well, like and Obama, those pages, they have like a minimum entry requirement. So like you can't go in and edit that page unless you have a minimum level of edits. Oh, okay. so there is a level of hierarchy. And they have, that's why they have admins, right? So an admin will go, well, you don't have 10,000 edits under your belt. Right. So I'm not going to take you seriously, go away. You know, you've got to have a level of legitimacy and it's to avoid people from going in and vandalising those pages. So can top editor, mm-hmm. can he or his bot say, right, today I'm going to rewrite Walt Disney? Yeah, but you would, if, if you're at that level, so because he wouldn't tell me, John wouldn't tell me exactly what levels those were set at, but if you're at that level, you're probably, it's not in your interest to go in and then start pissing off the whole community. And is there a cultural issue then with the kind of people who have a lot of free time and are quite nerdy or were in the old days being the kind of people that, that get that many thousands of edits under their belt? I suppose what I'm kind of saying is you get an issue where the only people that can edit pages about Nelson Mandela are white. They're trying to actively address the issue of diversity within Wikipedia. So like one of the things that they've noticed is that black musicians are underrepresented on the platform. Mm. So, But what the way they're trying to tackle that is work with people like Mobo, for example, to work on a project to bring artists and that kind of information and data to their pages. Hello, man fans. My name's Kobe Omanaka, and I'm a digital marketing consultant. And these are my life hacks for how to promote you or your fledgling business online. Tip number one is cultivate your email list. A lot of people spend a lot of time and money and effort trying to get their Twitter numbers, Twitter followers up, their Facebook fans up to the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. But I'd much rather have 100 people on my email list compared to 10,000 people on my Facebook list. Facebook changes all the time and you literally cannot control what people see. So the fact that you can send emails to people when you want to and it's only up to them to open that email, that is such a pure form of contact with people who might be looking to buy your goods or services. If you do want to go into something a bit more in depth, then email Octopus is a good option. But if you're not too sure where to start out, then I would suggest MailChimp as the first port to call. Tip number two, claim all of your social media accounts, but only focus on one when you're starting out. There are so many different social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. But what really scares people is that they feel that they have to spend time and effort managing all of these. I feel it's much better to double down or triple down on one platform at the start and then build out your repertoire. One great way to check out what names are available for you online is a simple website called Namechecker. Just type it in once and it'll display all of the names that are available to you on all the different platforms. And tip number three is to make sure you set up all your tracking and pixel codes right from the start. This tip is a bit more involved, but it's I find it really important. And as a digital marketer, it is perhaps one of the first things I do when I start out anything online. It's important to be able to track the people that come to your website using things like Google Analytics, because then you know what's working well for you online and what's not working well for you online. So if you know that Twitter isn't bringing anyone to your website, then you know not to spend more time on Twitter. And the way to build that out is using things like Google Analytics and the Facebook Pixel, embed them onto your website so you know right from the start where people are coming from and how much time they're spending with you. So those are my life hacks. If you want to find anything more about me online, visit my website, cobestar.io, or find me on Twitter at cobestar. 
Thanks to Kobe for his life hacks, sponsored by Podcast Lounge for Windows. Podcast Lounge is the new podcatcher for Windows 10 devices. It's an app where you can discover, subscribe and enjoy podcasts. Podcast Lounge saves time by downloading new episodes in the background, so everything is ready to go when you need it, even when you're on the move. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now, if I ask you to imagine a diver... Probably you'll picture someone in scuba gear, or possibly, if you're thinking outside the box, one of those big Jules Verne-style Victorian diving helmets. But in any case, it's something most of us imagine people do for fun. As a hobby, or as a sport, it's hard to think how you might actually make a living diving. But from oil diving to fishing boats, there are actually loads of ways to live off your diving skills, and Robert Stone has done them all. He's done a lot of other stuff too, or at least his aliases have, and not much of that was strictly legal. Robert first discovered his passion for diving when he was a teenager. I had worked at a swimming pool uh, when I was, you know, 12 or something. One of the lifeguards brought in scuba gear and and, uh, I had uh, borrowed it. Like they, you know, let me try it. And I was fascinated with all the treasure you find in a swimming pool, the bobby pins and chewing gum and quarters and you know things like that and i started reading all about scuba diving and you know all the coral reefs and then, then i came across a, a book by hans haas uh, called diving to adventure and diving to adventure was a story uh, about a man when he was probably 18 or 19 left germany right before the war went to curacao Bonaire in the dutch antilles and for a year, they lived on the beach, uh, spearing fish, taking pictures, and, and he wrote a book about it. And I uh, thought that'd be fascinating. And two or three times a year from then, I tried to run away and go there. But, you know, I kept getting stopped at either the Detroit border or the bridge or the tunnel or Buffalo or, you know, and... and uh, literally run away. Yeah, literally tried to go down. I never would have made it at the time, but, but as I so got... What, how old were you then? Well, 13, 14, and 15, I finally made it. I was working construction in the summertime and after, on weekends after school, and I had saved a little bit of money, and I had enough to buy a ticket to Miami and over to Andros Island because I couldn't make it all the way to Bonaire. And uh, I went to the airport one time, and, and I told the, the guy at the airport, he said, well, I want to get a one-way ticket. I said, because I meet my uncle in Miami, and we're going to sail back to Canada. And he thought, oh, have a great trip. So he let me go. And I got out and never went back. Never went back home? No. My father had already been gone a few years, and uh, and it wasn't a happy home to leave, so it wasn't really an issue. And I'd gotten a fight at school, and I hit the vice principal. And, you know, it was one of these things where it was just finished. And I had young parents married and had kids, two kids by the time they're 20. And, you know, it's just a... Uh, Yes, is married too young, no money, this, that, other things. So. It was the most brilliant day ever. I, I arrived in the morning, and I had this big old trunk full of sweaters, you know, like, because I left Canada in February, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and stuff I didn't need, you know, so I... Uh, basically just dumped stuff and, and uh, walked down the beach and swam in the water and, 
and was loving it, but I hadn't drank any water all day. I was got sunburned. Uh, with the sun went down, I had no place to stay. And uh, and the one thing Hans Haas didn't mention in his book was the sand fleas. You know, they're like uh, the Bahamian version of midges. And mm-hmm. so I, I, the sun came down. I was it probably had heat stroke. I probably I was dehydrated. I was sunburned. And, you know, covered in salt. And it was getting cold. And I was getting bitten. And uh, I remember crawling under this old fishing boat and turning it, you know, just putting it down and, and to shelter from the midges. It was a horrible night, you know, just, uh, you can imagine, uh, cry myself to sleep sort of night. And, uh, but then I woke up in the morning and uh, hitchhiked into t- town. And I got, there was only about two cars in, the bo- in Andros Island at the time. So, so you're 16 and you basically have no money in your pocket and you I'm, have a passport still, and a one-way ticket. I'm still 50. You're 50. Yeah, so I was really fortunate to got, I got picked up by a guy that ran the dive program at the hotel. And he got me a job at the hotel, Andros Beach Hotel and Villas, and uh, gave me a room. And uh, I worked on the boat for about oh, six months, you know, just helping tourists and uh, go and dive. And it was really, really magical. That lasted about, about six months because I was Canadian. You know, the, the immigration heard about a white boy working at the hotel and, and uh, they were coming to get me. And uh, there was a couple of guys at the dock that Hank knew and uh, they were leaving and uh, they gave me a ride. They dropped me off in Bimini. Where's Bimini? Uh, another one of the Bahamas. Uh, it's okay. uh, about 60 miles uh, to the east of uh, Miami. And I speared fish uh, off the beach. Actually, I started doing that and lobster and fish and, and uh, sold them to restaurants and made quite good money and did some other diving things that uh, like diving for lobster down the Ragged Islands. I hooked up with a guy that had a shrimp boat. We went down and, you know, we were actually making, you know, like thousands of dollars. It was really quite good. But the Bahamian uh, gunboats found out about us, tried to chase us out, so that stopped. And then these two guys that gave me the... The Bahamian gunboats? Yeah, yeah they had four gunboats at the time, and uh, uh, one of them came down and ran us out. And So they, but this is organized crime? No. This uh, is the government? Yeah, this government, like a navy, you know, they're... they're Navy boat, gunboat. So you, so spearing fish and selling fish, that's not legal because why? You didn't have a the, permit. Or? The spearing fish was, you know, more or less okay, but we were we were getting hundreds of pounds of lobsters off the off the ragged island chain, and and we weren't Bahamian, you know, we we're an American boat with, uh, you know, and no licenses and stuff like that. So it's it's illegal, but I mean, it's not tremendously illegal. And back then. You know they, they 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 didn't shoot at you like they would now. You know, but the, you know back back then they just were trying to stop us. But the two guys that gave me the lift from from Andros Island were smugglers. They they were they were uh, part of a, a fairly large gang that was uh, big in South Florida. But uh, one of the things that happened along the way is we hit a quite a big swell and a wave, and when it landed, knocked the compass loose and broke the compass and. One of the things that I had done in reading was was learned how to tell the direction by using a watch. You know, you use the watch and you, at the sun, and you can tell basically the 60 minutes turns into six degrees each. And basically, I guided them to where we had to go, and they were quite amazed at that. And I got offered a job to go salvage a treasure down in the uh, San Andres Islands, which are kind of off Costa Rica, Colombia. Went to salvage some treasure. Yeah, well, as it turned out, like halfway down, they said, "Well, it's not really treasure, you know. It's uh, it, we're going to we're going to pick up a load of marijuana. Do you mind?" 
<laughs> and, and I said, no, nah, not at all. You know, I said, uh, that, that sounds like fun. So. And w- were you a marijuana user? No, not at all. So you're 16 years old and, okay, you've gone off on an adventure, mm-hmm. but you found yourself eased into a world of criminality here. Like yeah. one, one minute you're fishing, next minute yeah. you're being chased by gunboats. Uh, well, now fleeing gunboats, you're on your way to pick up some marijuana. Yeah. Did you think at any point well, along that chain, oh, hold on, I could get in trouble here? It didn't really feel like that. It's just, you know, kind of a, uh, you're doing things and it's, you don't get caught, so you don't get caught and you don't really worry about it. The, the other side of it with, with the marijuana, we made several trips and ended up getting larger and larger, you know, freighters coming up from Colombia, anchoring off in the Bahamas. We're running it over with little boats and, you know, making really good money. And then a few people started to get arrested within my circle and other people's and I actually thought, well, I've been pretty, really lucky with everything that's happened. And a couple of guys I'd met along the way were ex-oil field divers, Navy. But uh, I uh, ended up uh, uh, going to the original dream of, of going diving and, and uh, just was a little bit more well-funded when I, than when I started up. So I was probably, I guess, 17, by 18, maybe just almost 18. Okay. So, I mean, I have a vague idea of what oil diving is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really know. In the river, we're salvaging barges, so that meant learning how to cut and burn, or cutting them up, or taking them out, or you know, working in a completely black atmosphere. Because the Bahamas, you see two, three hundred feet, and in the Mississippi River, you you can't see at all. You know, you go down three feet, and visibility is gone. So you're working, feeling where the current is, where your hose is. You know, so I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and eventually worked out into the swamps, which is, you know, working on small pipelines, repairing a leak or doing things like that. And then eventually offshore into deeper water where we're setting platforms, uh, and that's jackets. That's the, the dangerous one really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, you're getting deeper and the work's, you know, bigger. And, and uh, you know, i give you an idea, like the most highly paid job working from the surface was uh, inside burn-off. So when they s- put a jacket uh, which is an oil platform on 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 the seabed they put piles down the legs and hammer the piles down and then you go down and and basically burn the pile off below the mud line from inside the pile in order to retrieve the majority of the pile because they only need the bit that's anchoring the platform so you they flood the pile lift you up with a crane you know you go down the pile the inside pile which is maybe 36 42 inches in diameter and so you're 200 feet down whatever inside and you're burning these things off and and you got double depth pay which was great so as a diver you got paid the deeper you went and uh by the foot how did you go from effectively now being qualified Mm. in something that is well remunerated back into marijuana smuggling Uh, i i had uh, a couple accidents that i had and and some of my old friends would come to visit and and uh, they we're still smuggling and and they kind of thought it was pretty silly for me to be doing what I'm doing risking my life when for the money I was making even though it was a couple hundred grand a year was still not very much compared to what they were doing and uh and one time I had a fairly bad accident and it got in an explosion blowing up but the uh and I'd got married I just got married and and uh decided to kind of put it behind me I bought an old boat and I took fuel from Louisiana and this old supply boat down to Nicaragua where they had a war going on at the time and the Hondurans were fishing shrimp and lobster down there. So 
they had to make instead of going ashore in Nicaragua, they had to bring the catch all the way back to to Honduras to the to the Bay Islands, Rotan uh, in particular, and. So that was about six days. And, of course, every time a boat comes in, there's another day. So they lose a week of fishing, and and uh, they'd have to go buy the fuel. So what I decided would work would be I'd take them the fuel offshore and uh, trade it for a shrimp or a lobster, whatever they were catching. So I'd sell the fuel at the Honduran rate, which was a couple of dollars a gallon. I was paying 10 cents a gallon in Louisiana at the time. I would uh, take the shrimp from them at local rates and then sell it back in in the United States, so <laughs> that worked out pretty good for a little while till the Hondurans thought I was running guns and stuff, and which we weren't. But so, actually, is there anything illegal about that? No, n- nothing really, nothing at it's all. It's just so. that the profits suggested to the government that you must be up to something. Oh, yeah, it was because we had so much, you know, the fuel and the money and the shrimp and things. So the the crews got a little nervous, but instead they they armed themselves, but instead of throwing the uh, boxes over the side or burning them or putting them in rubbish they had left them kind of in a tip when we when they were clearing customs in honduras one time boxes of guns yeah like just you know rifles and shotguns and handguns and just the you know the box not a lot but you know a dozen so when the military saw these the guns they actually seized the boats thinking it was gun running but it wasn't but you know it 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 kind of ruined the operation because the the boats were seized i i had picked up some boats that I was using for this and uh, I also had another boat that I took off a friend that we'd use for actual treasure diving. We did some treasure diving in off Florida. These fuel boats that from Nicaragua and the treasure boat from Florida, I converted them into longline boats and we started fishing the Gulf of Mexico for tuna and swordfish. And the I had uh, read that the Japanese had longline fished in the Gulf of Mexico in the 50s and 60s, but left because they basically fished it out. And I thought, well, there's a good chance that all that had recuperated, and it had. So we, I took this 150-foot boat, where I put a 60-mile reel on it, I put freezer containers, and, and I went out for a couple of weeks on the boat and tried it out, hanging glow lights off the hooks and fishing with squid. It was really interesting and incredibly lucrative one of the issues with at the time they had the yugoslav mafia kind of in in new orleans that that controlled fish prices and stuff so every time then we started coming in with fish prices would drop in order to get around that we set up our own fish uh, distributing company it worked uh, very well i got more boats and then uh, one of the fishermen got a hook through his finger and we ended up giving the guy his share of the boat while he was off because the big hooks and he was injured but there was a lawsuit came up over it and the lawsuit was uh from his girlfriend because that was her favorite finger right and we were (laughs) gonna have sexually that was her favorite finger yeah and that uh, was the lawsuit yeah it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars and the lawyers said that we would we wouldn't win you know we'd lose it and or it cost us much to fight it and uh so I deflagged the boats, and I had spent some time in Brazil because one of the guys I worked with in the 70s that, that smuggling had uh, was on the run, and I'd helped him uh, establish and get himself settled in Brazil. So the, I went down and, and started uh, putting a fishing processing plant together in, in Natal, which is up in the northeast of uh, Brazil, and 
there was shrimp and lobster boats down there that were tied up because they had overfished their industry and it was they weren't catching anything, so they're all tied up. So I basically started buying them ten cents on the dollar and putting them to work up Brazil, and we we eventually had twenty seven boats, about four or five hundred people working for us, and and we became probably the third largest fresh tuna company in, in the United States at the time. You know, distributing. Wow. And. In, in a period of a couple of years, so... So again... Yeah. <laughs> I keep coming back to the same question. Well... Things seem to be going well. Yes. So why, why end up back with marijuana? Because we'd done so well, and because I'd gone from nothing to, to 27 boats and, you know, a couple of million a month of fish flying up, and uh, the government also, because everybody was working for me, had more or less just been released from prison for, for marijuana smuggling, so they... Uh, guys that I'd worked with and had got caught and had gone to jail over it. So they figured, you know, they put two and two together, got six, and, and uh, uh, figured we were smuggling. And, and then they had, uh, you know, you ever hear of Geraldo Rivera? Uh, mm, the, the talk show. Yeah, well, they had a Brazilian guy like him. It was called Akia Gora. And uh, he used to put his fingers together like a crosses and like you're in jail right Akia Gora he'd be there so he did a big television expose on on these Americans but I'm not American by the way I'm Canadian but these, these the way he said these Americans are are smuggling uh cocaine and uh out of Brazil and and you weren't no not at all so and twice that happened people listening to this will think that stretches plausibility that, no. that twice you've been accused of drug smuggling with the history of drug smuggling but you actually weren't you can see why he would put two and two together. What we were doing did not involve drugs whatsoever. What we maybe were doing in other places did, but not there. What were and you doing in the time. other places? Well, like I said, I, I loaned a, a boat to, to guys to go smuggle from, from, from Asia to, to the United States. Oh, but, so that was still an active thing. Yeah, it was going on, but the, you've got no idea how the American government works anyway. Once they start investigating something and they spend millions of dollars investigating you, they have to come up with something because it's just like any other business they they if they spend money and the, their superiors want to know where the money's gone they, they can't just say oh we were wrong police surrounded the building and in Brazil the police are fine you know but now they know we're smuggling cocaine you know they want they want a lot of money not to not to mess with us but we weren't and anybody that was good wouldn't work for us anybody that bad wanted a fortune so really from a company employing you know 500 people it went to nothing and and just really a, a week and one of the guys that was working with me had asked me to supply another boat for another operation in Asia, and I refused to do it. And then when everything was destroyed, went home, told my wife I was going back diving, and uh, and and I called my friend up and I said, uh, "Let's do the smuggle, but you know, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it." So and this was a smuggle of what from where to where? It was basically ended up being 12 ton of marijuana from from more or less. Thailand through Vietnam out to the coast and up to Alaska and down to the States. How long is that at sea? What, the trip? Yeah. Oh, it's maybe three, four weeks. I can't really remember. 
So uh, along the way, I mean, I have no idea. Are there pirates? Are there government officials? Do you have to bribe people? No, we had, uh, because of some of the boats that I'd helped in the Gulf of Mexico with the fishing were Vietnamese refugees originally. I had some pretty good contacts in Vietnam with, with things, and uh, I was able to get a little bit of protection out there from one of the Vietnamese gunboats that were, stayed just in case they could intervene. Took it up, went through a couple storms, and... There was the Exxon Valdez at the time. It was a, mm. uh, a problem uh, because it had just spilled its guts everywhere and uh, right in our offload area. So we had to make a choice to, to change the location and we were gonna offload. And one of the problems was it was a different fishing area. So the way we had to offload it ended up not being able to put everything on board the vessel. So we ended up uh, having to sink four tons there, which is still there. And, uh, <laughs> When we arrived off the coast of Alaska, a Coast Guard helicopter flew out over us and asked us to identify ourselves, which was, you can imagine, maybe a little nerve-wracking. Mm. And, uh, and we just said we were, uh, oil field, well, we were an oil field supply vessel. We were, in, we were an anchor handling tug supply, about 200 foot. And uh, I said we were en route to Mexico, but we'd heard about this, and we said we just, we're not working for anybody. We just came up to see if we could help. And they said, uh, stand by. And the vice president at the time, Dan Quayle, uh, was on board the helicopter. And he said, guys, America needs more men like you. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and they flew away. Wow. So, but you didn't actually have to then help with the cleanup of the Exxon Valdez. No. no. And we just went on, did the offload, and, and sunk the container. And, and uh, everything went very well, and nobody knew about anything. And, and uh which is the nice thing about a smuggle. People don't know. It's not like robbing a bank and everybody knows, you know, just nobody knows it happened. That's and your, your wife in Scotland at the time? She thought it was diving. She really did think yeah, it was, it was diving. unfortunate. She had no idea you were dumping marijuana in the sea. No. But at this point now, it's not a case of you running a kosher business enterprise with a few things on the side. This is now you're now a smuggler again, well, right? I, well, I did the one trip. A few months later, my, we found out my son was going to be born. And uh, I... I decided to go and kind of Nigeria seemed like it had a lot of promise. So for what I, uh, I, I had met a guy who, who could get the black market fuel at the time, which was a little bit difficult. And he'd got a big pipeline contract in Nigeria. But what had happened was the two main contractors, McDermott and Buiggs had boycotted them from getting fuel. Effectively he'd run out of fuel. He couldn't complete the contract. They'd take it over. He'd be ruined. And I heard him moaning about this in a, in a casino in Lagos. And uh, I just kind of said, well, I can help you out with that. And he didn't believe me, but charged him international rates for the fuel. And I'd bring him out, so I was paying maybe 10 bucks a ton for it and selling it for 320 You know, 500 ton a time, it started adding up. And he took as much as I could get, so I started getting as many boats as I could get doing it. And What did you think the end point would be to that, though? Well, just, you know, just Nigeria is completely different in many ways. You know, you're probably one of the most corrupt countries in the world. You know, I kept getting arrested, but all the arrests were, were a way to extort you for money. And uh, so I would uh, uh, go and uh, get picked up with this guy and I'd give him money. And then the next guy up would find out and he'd get me arrested and picked up and then so eventually I was dealing with an admiral I wasn't getting arrested anymore but it was costing me maybe a hundred dollars a ton to move the fuel up the river so that how much cash would change hands oh uh, multiply a hundred times 500 is uh, what's that 
50 grand. So 50 grand to the police every time you're moving fuel. Uh, it started, you know, with that, but also started to, uh, you know, make wire transfers instead of, of, uh, of cash payments. So. I mean, how much would you, were you taking home? Probably a million a month. So When I say where did you see this was going, oh, if you're taking a million a month, let's say you've been doing it for six months, that's $6 million. Yeah, well. How did you think you'd be able to convincingly tell anyone that $6 million was yours? Well, I didn't really need to because I wasn't banking in a country that, that, that required that. I was you know, banking in, in environments where it didn't matter in places like, you know, Austria and Switzerland, Liechtenstein and Gibraltar and the UK. Where the UK money would come in, it would be from regular payments from any of the companies, Chevron, Shell, Exxon. At, at the end, I had 23 boats working under contract to various uh, construction or, uh, or uh, oil companies. So the money, I would have that going into accounts and my, my payments for the fuel were, you know, wire transfer payments from legitimate construction companies. Because I was, you know, getting fuel in, in more or less a, a very unorthodox way, you know, they, eventually what, what I ended up doing was, uh, was just kind of, you know, gangsters that were supplying the fuel. I, I ended up buying directly from the government, more or less, from the refinery. So, but I couldn't be pulling up my little boats to it. I, I needed a tanker, so I ended up getting two tankers, uh, one small... 1500 ton and a 6000 ton tanker and i could just drive them directly to the refinery and load up and whilst you're dealing with all this mm. sort of you know stashing your cash away in various different banks and working out new ways to get more and more oil and dealing mm. with corrupt people in the government of nigeria and also gangsters as well mm. doesn't sound like you had a lot of time for your family no i didn't and uh you know the by this time my my daughter was born and I had made a decision to kind of break away from the past kind of guys that I, I had been pretty loyal to over the years. I had made a trip down to the various spots along the coast. I was in the Congo, I was in Gabon, I was in Namibia, South Africa. When I was flying from uh, Kinshasa to the coast, I think, Point Noir, we ended up, as we took off, we had a problem with, with the aircraft. It ended up uh, landing on a bush strip in northern Angola. You know, the Civil War was on at the time. Luckily, it didn't crash, but we, we didn't. And I, then I went over to uh, Liberia, I think, from there. And, and I went and because uh, I had a, a tanker full of fuel in Liberia because we were selling to the ECOWAS forces, which was based in Nigerian guys. We were getting a kickback to the generals to sell the fuel over there. They were peacekeeping in, in Liberia at the time. <laughs> And uh, ended up, you know, getting robbed by some child soldiers and, you know, like 12, 13-year-old kids all high on drugs and machine guns. And it was, you know, very, very close experience. And then uh, got back to Lagos that day on the way to the airport, from the airport to my house in, in Victoria Island. I had, we had a head-on collision, you know. So it was kind of those three things, plus my daughter being born. I was just like, my God, what am, what am I doing all this for when I actually – have finances enough to to not be doing this and, mm. and uh i had made a decision to sell the company and i think the guy when i was going to sell he felt he was going to be removed and he was the one i believe that told the government about my alaska trip which started indictments going nobody knew about this trip and all of a sudden now they know everything you know but how and mm. ended up uh, getting arrested and and uh they rioted that day they like we had 750 guys in the yard and uh, 
they came up, you know, carrying a coffin saying, you know, chanting, Rob must, it's Rob must die, it was painted on the side of the coffin. Then I went to Lagos and uh, got arrested. That was a result of the U.S. government with these indictments, and I had to pay my way out of there, and I went ran the run for the better part of two years. And so, How did you pay your way out well, of being investigated by the U.S. It. government? Yeah, but it's a different well, thing, not, isn't it? To not giving... with the U.S. government, with the Nigerian government. But right. they're acting on behalf of the U.S. at that point. Yeah, but... It's still a still it's possibility to pay yourself out? Yeah. Where did you end up on the run? I flew out of, of Nigeria and uh, ended up oh, by the way. in a jet. Yeah, I had a jet fly in the money and I flew out on the jet. So a private jet that had the money on it? Yeah, so, uh, so using that method, you don't need to show your passport to anyone and you can pay people well, up? you know, it's, it's Nigeria. I went out uh, to France. I had other IDs, you know, so I was using another ID and a... A little while later, I got I got my wife and children down, and we we stayed in, in the Alps, in the French Alps, a place by Chamonix. And uh, what were you telling your children about what Daddy did for a living? Well, they were still young; they were only three and four. And I just told my wife that I had tax problems, you know. Which oh, she still didn't know. She never did know anything, you know, until I got, actually got arrested. But the uh, she never did know. I just the pressure her, of that, keeping that double life up, yeah, well. is immense, isn't it? It, it It's very stressful when you're doing several different things and several different IDs, and you know, it's difficult. Did you? Was there a part of you that thought, actually, I should just tell the truth, it would be easier on myself? Uh, well, as I was saying, you know, tell the truth, there's less to remember, right? <laughs> it was a very difficult period, and of course, being on, on, on the run and, and the companies uh, running a little short of money, trying to get money, the uh, companies going from a million and a half a month to you know half a million a month and the shell and all these oil companies are here and you got problems so they're not paying you maybe they were paying me but you know it was getting siphoned somewhere and then once the warrants became were out there every account i was associated with in my name was was locked up and closed i had very limited access to funds except for funds i had in different names and mm. even those were starting to become difficult like the one i had in Liechtenstein was the the lawyers that had handled it didn't want to release it to me and there was no reason they shouldn't because they didn't know who i was they just sent something so they well prove it prove where this money came from you know and this uh and so i ended up having to you know more or less force them to to go into the bank and give me the money and you know that entails everything you can imagine i took two of the brothers and another friend of mine and held a gun to the one guy's head and the other guy held a gun to him and took him to the bank and got my money out the bank and in a safety deposit box and and uh which all of it wasn't it was you know about a fifth of it was in a safety deposit box and the other was in an account which they couldn't touch because the government had seized it or locked it they said and eventually it did catch up with you how did that happen yeah because they the the when they told the authorities that and they figured out who you know because it was another name and then they told me you know my name and and uh, they figured all that out and then they put an extradition warrant to the united states to to release me and we were fighting the u.s government at the time to transfer me to a canadian according to my plea agreement i had a transfer treaty in it and uh end up getting extradited to Liechtenstein over it where they uh, i really thought i was going to go do five or ten years there but uh didn't very luckily 
you know, just uh, it's been an angel on my shoulder for a long time, even though a lot of bad things happened. The, uh, I just came up with, a, you know, a few statements where, which exonerated the lawyers and didn't place blame. And at the time, the Liechtenstein's authorities didn't didn't want publicity about being a money laundering place for cartels, which basically they were. Yeah. And uh, and I just said, uh, keep the money. I'm not after the money. If you don't, you know, I just want to go home to my family. And uh, there was a lady judge and. She dropped everything and said, and that uh, asked the lawyers, "Is this true? Were you just scared? Were you just scared you're going to get accused of money? And they, did you make this up?" And they just said, "Well, yeah, kind of, yes, you know." And uh, everything just went away. They were, they dropped it, and I went home. Home being Aberdeen, home? yeah. And yeah. did you think really yeah. you've had a lucky escape there? It is time oh. to change. Oh, without a doubt, I, I had already. And we've had two long, years to think that. Long time ago, I had thought that. I really recognized the fact that uh, my loyalties were misplaced, you know, like this whole thing, you know, for your organized crime family and it's everything and your family's next. And it's just not right, not true. And the people who really, only people you should be loyal to is your, well, it really is your children, you know. So I was very fortunate to be able to spend, I guess it was six years, a little bit, maybe seven years with my wife uh, making up to her for the years that I didn't treat her so well. And uh, and then unfortunately she died very suddenly. So Of what? So, uh, she had a stroke. Oh, I'm sorry to hear and, that. Yeah, it was, uh, we were running and she was very fit and healthy and everything and had won a marathon the weekend before. But what, as I found out, what young people, young healthy people dying of strokes are usually for three reasons. Uh, one, sit-ups at a gym maybe on a ramp and you're grabbing your neck and you're maybe touching your elbows to opposite knees or something like that and you tear your neck because that, that's what happens is you you put a, a tear in your carotid artery. Women at, or men too, but it's mostly women at uh, beauty salons getting their hair washed. That's the second biggest cause of stroke in, in young people. And uh, bad dreams. So that's what Linda had was a bad dream. So the uh, just startled in the night and tore her carotid artery, which, which when she exercised, they went, went for a run, created a flap. And uh, there were signs there of a mini stroke, but we didn't realize it because mm. the doctors, when we went after it happened again, we went to the doctors and they just said it was a maybe a detached retina and they were checking things. But so it turned out that's what it was because she suffered a, a major one later that day and uh, died uh, four days later. So. And at that point, what were you doing professionally? Uh, my children were 10, 11. I couldn't go to the store without them worrying if I come home. So uh, for the next several years, I just, uh, I built homes, you know, built a home and, you know, sell it and build another one. That way I could drive the kids to school and maintain it and do stuff. And then uh, one of the guys I used to work with in the oil industry, we came to buy one of the homes, you know, and we started talking and uh, he was telling me he's working in Iraq and all these drilling programs and show me pictures of him in flak jackets with the guys and uh, and he's working in offshore wind and it got me excited because you know I was golfing and <laughs> building houses and looking after the kids it was you know it gave me all these uh, memories of doing stuff so I got involved with him just as we get things set up uh, I found out I had cancer and uh, I had to go to the hospital and almost didn't get out of the hospital very close like I mean literally lawyers and priests and my children were outside the door their grandparents had died and uh, everything else and uh, 
and they didn't of course know my, my, I hadn't been in contact with my family in Canada for decades. They just wondered what they did in their past life, you know, because everybody around them had died. I couldn't open my eyes, you know, and this priest who had done perform my, my wife's funeral, uh, the father-in-law's funeral, the mother-in-law's funeral, and had kind of been there to speak to sometimes. And she came to me and she brought kind of an anchor crucifix thing. And she said, if you ever, you just, you know, hold it. But they didn't actually, I had it in my hand. It wasn't in my hand, it was in the drawer. But I remember that night pretending it was in my hand and just thinking, it's like, oh, I didn't want to leave the kids. But basically that next morning, my body rebooted. You know, it was about eight days after the operation. And uh, Do you think that's kind of mind over matter or do you think it's God? It's as religious an experience as I've ever had in my life. I was a conscious thought of, like, God help me. There he was. And, uh, when you thought so, you were about to die, mm. did you look back on your life? Yeah, there's lots of things, you know. You just go, uh, uh, some funny, you know, like uh, I'd never been to Sicily and I can't believe I didn't go. I always wanted to. I was very happy that I'd, I'd got to spend the time with, with, uh, with my wife that I did because she was really, really good and by putting up with me and uh, staying with me because I don't know how she did. Did you, when but you look back I, across it, did you wish that you told her the truth? No, not at all because she would have just got in trouble. If I hadn't done all those things, that would have been a lot better. I mean, you tell your story with a smile on your face mm. and there's a lot of, there's a kind of, there's a fun boy's own American-made style mm. romp about some of these mm. experiences. But I imagine fearing for your life, being on the run, mm. dealing with corrupt police officers, it isn't really fun. No, it's not at all. It's, uh, I remember standing in Chamonix one day with uh, you know, the business falling apart, my, my kids in, in a, under, living under another name, the, uh, everybody that I'd ever known had already gone to jail and ratted me, and not knowing where to go. You know, like I was literally like I had one foot nailed to the ground and I was turning around in a circle, couldn't get my breath and just couldn't remember what I was doing. You know, just like, where am I going? What am I doing? Who am I? <laughs> just, you know, just uh, I sometimes call people and, and who's this? And I'd, I'd, I'd have to look it up. Who am I today? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you go into a place and they say, happy birthday. <laughs> Feliz cumpleaños. You know, and it's like, who you're talking to and then realize that you know that person you are that day is 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 his birthday you know <laughs> that's not a life i i miss one bit and some people say like the going to prison or being bereaved or cancer you know it's just uh like god's wake-up call you know and uh i i laughed the last time i heard that i think it was after the cancer i just said uh i looked up to the sky and said hey god I'm awake already. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Robert Stone. And there's more, a lot more, about Robert's life in his book, Chasing Black Gold. I'll put a link on our website. And remember, if you have a story you'd like to share on the show, reach out via our feedback form at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Still to come, our record of the week, and Alex Fox is up next after this. (laughs) 
It's time to talk sex. It's the foxhole. How are you, Alex Fox? Hello, Ollie. I'm great, thank you. What have you been up to this week? I have been checking out a new sex toy called the Womanizer Premium. The terrible name, but a brilliant product. Okay. Um, including something called Smart Silence, which means that the toy automatically turns off and becomes utterly silent when oh. you remove it from the body. So if you That's stop good. using We've it... We've had questions asking for a product like that in exactly, the past. Yeah. Exactly. The minute you stop using it... Uh, it's completely silent. When you press it back on your body, it's automatically prompted to stimulate you and, and get buzzing again. And the manufacturers have said, well, this has obvious benefits. You know, if you're if a child walks in or you've got to be quiet all of a sudden or you can hear your, your neighbour banging on the wall or whatnot, all you need to do is drop the toy and it will stop. And it, it's less invasive as a toy during a sexual experience. Hear your neighbour banging on the wall. Is that an example from your experience? Are you, are you saying that you've used a vibrator that's so loud that neighbours have banged on the wall to say, please stop? Neighbours have commented. Uh, None of them have banged in response to my banging yet. (laughs) Did I not tell you my tale about when I used to live in a shared house and I was going at it hammer and tongs with a partner Mm. uh, and the headboard was bashing against my my, uh, flatmate's wall so hard that in the morning he informed me that he knew I'd orgasmed at three minutes past four in the morning because his clock had fallen (laughs) off the wall (laughs) and knocked him on the head and stopped at the exact moment of my climax. No, you hadn't told us that, but the headboard banging is different to self-pleasuring filtering the walls isn't yes it? but it is a recognized problem that a lot of sex toys are just too loud invasively yeah. loud yeah okay. and one of the arguments that womanizer make for making a toy that automatically turns off is that if you are a person who at the, the point of climax likes to save a silence or maybe even take in some music then this is the ideal toy for you Right, time for our listener question of the week, sponsored as ever by our friends at mycondom.com. Who stock, Ollie? An anal lubricant with my favourite name ever. It's ID's Backslide. (laughs) This is a long-lasting, thick silicone formula which contains spilanthes extract, which is purported to have mild muscle relaxant properties to the point where it's actually used in some really high-end face creams because it gives a kind of uh, mild Botox effect. So it'll help uncrinkle the wrinkle of your winking butthole and relax you into sex. Our question of the week is from Zero, who says, I'm a single man in my mid-twenties, and I'm curious if Alex has any advice on how I can improve my sex drive. For the last several years, I have basically identified myself in social circles as unavailable, verging on asexual. I have had long-term relationships in the past, but I've been single for seven years now, and I feel it's largely to do with the fact that I have a very low libido. It really shuts down my desire to meet most people my age in the new ways, like using dating apps. I live alone, I have a low-stress job, and I make enough money to be comfortable. I don't think stress is the issue. So what tips might Alex have to increase my sexual drive? There's a lot that's intriguing here, but one line in particular stood out to me, and that is that Zero is describing himself in social circles as being unavailable, verging on asexual. Mm. It sounds like he's self-defining as potentially asexual. And that in itself is a hard thing to shout over loud music in a bar. (laughs) True, (laughs) especially since it's not really understood by a lot of people. But in general, it means a lack of sexual attraction to other people or with low or completely absent interest in having sex with anyone. Some people who are asexual do say that it's a sexual 
persuasion, the same as homosexuality or heterosexuality or bisexuality or any of those. Mm. For other aces, though, aces being the nickname for asexual people, they sometimes actually use an ace of spades to to stand for their community. That's, I mean, that's quite sexy, but of course... <laughs> it is quite, isn't it? Unnecessarily so. <laughs> they've got a sexy flag as well. It's, uh, the colours are black, white, grey and purple. And I always think yeah, it looks sexy. sort of like, yeah, an S&M room mm. or something like that. So it's ironically quite, quite a sexy image that asexuals have. But yeah, some aces say that they're always, they always have been and always will be asexual. For others, it is a period of time that they go through. It's usually quite sustained. And there are many different types of asexuality as well. For some people, they're aromantic as well. They don't have any desire to be romantic with anyone. They don't want cuddles. They don't want snuggles. They don't want any kind of closeness or what could be construed as a a dating relationship. Others would really like to be close to someone and maybe be quite tactile or have a, a loving, caring, sharing relationship just without the sex. Then there are demisexuals who say that they only feel inclined towards sexual activity with someone when they forged a really deep emotional bond with them. So they just simply don't fancy doing anything physical with anyone unless it's under very strict circumstances that they feel truly understood and very, very safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are grey sexuals or grey A's who live in the kind of grey area, as, as the name suggests, between sexuality and asexuality. So they might be inclined towards some kind of sexual activity at some points, but all of these people define themselves as having significantly lower interest mm. in sexual activity under any circumstances than what is considered the norm amongst sexual people. And I suppose that's the difference then between asexuality and celibacy, isn't it? Precisely. Celibacy is a choice based on moral values, for example, religion. Or but you might you still might have be... a high sex drive. Yeah. So there is a possibility that Zero, as a guy in his mid-twenties who says he hasn't had a relationship for seven years, he doesn't feel like he's stressed or depressed, or at least not ostensibly, uh, and he says that he's voluntarily telling his friends that he's unavailable because he doesn't really feel like he has this high libido, he doesn't have an inclination towards sex right now, there is a possibility that he could be asexual. And that can actually be quite a lonely, isolating experience because when sexuality is pushed upon us... Mm. Uh, from so many different angles in so many different ways by society we're all told that we should be wanting and desiring sex then it can make you feel a bit weird about yourself if you feel like that's not something you want and you can start questioning yourself there's a possibility that zero's search for a higher libido is something that he feels like he ought to do in order to conform to societal regulation rather than genuinely desiring relationship. So lots of asexual people seek ways to have sex even though they don't want to, Mm. uh, i.e. create this libido that they don't naturally have. If that's the case for Zero, and only he will be able to answer this question, he might find it interesting to seek out a community group called AVEN, who are the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. And, I mean, it might be that what he's looking for, really is a long-term relationship where sex is on the table, as it were, but he doesn't want sex all the time, he just wants sex a bit. And I suppose meeting other people in a situation where you can talk about that openly means you can find someone who's exactly matched to your sex drive. Yes. I mean, so many marriages, frankly, aren't working that way. We know from our own mailbag, right? A lot of the questions we get are, 
my wife doesn't want to have sex as much as I do, basically. Yeah, so there's a high chance that there'd be someone out there, just like Zero, who doesn't want sex that often. One of our other listeners' wives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right in. The fact that he says that he doesn't really feel inclined towards finding partners or dates through these new forms of uh, apps, as he puts it, well, a lot of those are geared towards sexuality, aren't they? There's a, ha- there's a high emphasis on hookups. Yeah. So it might be that he's looking in the wrong place for the wrong things apps. he wants. Yeah. yeah. Or it also, it's just, it's not unusual to, excuse my French, fucking hate those apps. Mm. So if Zero is just having an experience where he feels disinterested in finding someone via that method, that might be... Uh, underlining his feeling that this isn't something he wants and compounding his sensation of not wanting sex or or, or relationship at all when in fact he's being so put off by the, the poor experiences of apps that he's extrapolating that experience to his wider life. Mm. I think he needs to really sit down and in a very non-judgmental, very open-minded way just ask what he would really like from life right now because a lack of sex drive or a loss of sex drive is only really a problem if the person experiencing it believes that it's problematic. And in practical terms, when he says, what tips might Alex have to increase my sex drive? I mean, what can you actually do? I mean, obviously, physically, there's Viagra. But what is there in terms of uh, emotionally making you more prepared to have more sex? Well, libido, I would say, is like a sailing boat. It's really natural throughout your life for it to bob up and down, and that's applicable to anybody. It's only if that sailing boat hits the bottom of the ocean and it's at rock bottom going nowhere that maybe you need to have a you need to be worried about that. In fact, the last NATSAL, the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, uh, reported in September that 15% of sexually active men in Britain had lost interest in sex for three months or more during the previous year. So it's, it's it's really, really common for libido to go up and down. Seven years is a long time not to feel like you want to have sex. So I'd be checking out, maybe just nip to your GP and get an MOT to rule out any potential physical issues. Things like low testosterone, which is admittedly more common in over 45s, heart disease, diabetes, thyroid issues. There's some prescription medications like antipsychotics or anti-epilepsy drugs. Mm. Uh, Ironically, as we've covered before, antidepressants, Mm. depressingly, can have a knock-on effect on your libido. blood pressure uh, not exercising enough or exercising too much can also have an effect on on how much you want to have sex smoking alcohol drug use there's all sorts of chemical and physical influences that might be playing a part however it could be a separate emotional thing zero says that he doesn't think he's stressed because he's got a job that pays him enough money and he doesn't you know really feel that overexerted in it however He also says that he lives alone, he hasn't had a relationship for seven years and he's in a way self-sabotaging by announcing to all his friends that he's unavailable or disinterested. Mm. That to me sounds like it potentially has the capacity to be quite a solitary, lonely existence. So maybe if he thought about it in more depth, he might actually be a wee bit lonely and, and a wee bit depressed. Mm. Stress and anxiety aren't just caused by hard jobs and long hours. Mm. They can be caused by too much time on your own as well. So if that's the case, then Zero might be interested in going out and doing something fun just for the sake of it. In fact, I would say that without putting pressure on himself to turn it into a date, 
going out and doing something silly for a laugh, perhaps something that incorporates physical exertion and exercise as well, would just be a good way of getting his heart racing, getting his blood pumping and getting him out there to meet more people and socialise so he's opening his horizons a little bit more. A couple of other quick tips for people who maybe want to reawaken their libido who know that they're not asexual and who have ruled out those, uh, those potential physical influences. Number one, try going for a massage. It's a really low-pressure way of reawakening your sensuality. It's it's skin-on-skin contact. It's relaxing. It's a really enjoyable experience for most people. And it's a good way of just getting back in touch with your body if that's something that you haven't done with another person before. Another thing that I've started doing is, uh, I'm not sure how available they are in the rest of the country, but in London there is a group called Rabble who invite people to get together and for a fairly small fee play old school games like uh, British Bulldog or Rounders, you know, that kind of silly stuff. Um, It doesn't matter if you're shit at sports. It's all outdoors, which we know is good for depression and anxiety as well, getting outside, having a run round, and it's a real laugh. So if you're someone who wants to just get back in touch with their body a bit and maybe get a little bit fit and reawaken your sociability without putting too much emphasis on sex, that could be a really good option. If, however, you are someone who intends to have sex and a lot of it, may we recommend the services of mycondom.com. And if you use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, you get 15% off everything on site. And whatever your sexuality, if you have a question of sex for Alex. Head over to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback. Well, that is nearly it for this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Mike from South Wales who says, Ollie, I've been a listener from the start and thought it was about time I got round to buying you a beer. A beer in South Wales is £3.42, so I'm actually slightly out of pocket, but you deserve it. Uh, Mike, thank you for the additional 18 pence, and I now pronounce you ambassador for all the South Wales Valleys. If you would like to donate £3.60 to the show, that's the average price of a pint of beer in Britain, visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money. Uh, music now and our theme is by Django Django, for whom we are eternally grateful. And our record of the week this week comes from Canadian synthwave group La Force. It's called Ready to Run and it's available to stream now thanks to Arts and Crafts. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. People on the move On oceans, bridges and trains So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. 
We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.